0: One, one verse within what Pastor Curtis just read that we want to get through today. So let me read it again, chapter three, verse 15. And our entire time together this morning will be focused on this one verse. my entire sermon is pointed here. These are God's words to Satan, uh, the second half of those words. Verse 15 of chapter three. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So all of our time on one verse, because it's a very important verse, I hope that God, by His Spirit, would settle this verse deeply, uh, deeply in our hearts today. So, Prayerfully, we'll understand it, uh, appreciate it, and apply it. Well, my, that's my hope. My hope is that we can understand what is it that this is actually saying here, uh, that we can appreciate it. So there's a difference, right, between just knowing something and appreciating something, knowing it and embracing it. So my hope is that it would, you know, we'd go from here to here. We would understand it, but we would really in my own words we would really feel what it is that, that we're reading here and then that we'd be able to apply it uh, what does this mean what does this mean to my life and and all good preaching has to has to go there so understand it appreciate it apply it so so far here's the background what has gotten us up into this point god has made everything everything god made and everything was was good and within everything that God made, He had made this man, and then He made this woman. And He looks at everything after six days of creation, and God says everything is, is very good. It's just what you would expect, because God is good. Um, and God is light, First 1 John 1, 1.5. And, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So if He's going to make and create something, it's going to be good. It's going to be beautiful. And so this is what, this is what God made. He made this man, he made this woman, he put him in this garden, he gave him work to do, he gave him each other, um, gave of himself. They had this relationship with God. It was, it was wonderful. God also gave him a bit of instruction. He gave them a bit of instruction so that they would be reminded that, they are, uh, that they're not autonomous, that they're not independent, that they're not on the same level as God, but they're accountable to him. And, and they are to worship him, praise him, uh, follow him, and serve him. They're not their own authority. They're under authority. But God just gave him one instruction. He said, there's this tree in the garden, two trees among many trees, two very important trees. And the one tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may not eat the fruit of this tree. So every day you walk by this tree, Adam and Eve, and you're reminded of my instruction. You're reminded that you are not your own authority, but you are under authority. And the promise there was, don't do this and, you know, obey me and serve me and and you're going to live. But chapter 2, verse 17 if you eat of that fruit, you will surely, you will surely die. Then we read about Satan coming into the garden, and Satan tempts um, Adam and, and Eve. And, and the way Satan still tempts is by uh, dangling a carrot sort of in front of us, um, trying to convince us that, that we, we may have something that God doesn't want us to have and that it's better than God and it 's better than what he would have for us, and so he begins to lie to them and, and tell them that God really doesn 't have your your best interest in mind and, and there's he 's holding you back, and there 's so much more to uh to life and God is a a very restrictive uh God, and so he 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 banks on them kind of being like that college freshman that finally gets a, away from home and is goes crazy because they have this freedom that they don't know what to, to do with. And Adam and Eve fall for that. Uh, and what actually happened is they believe Satan and they unbelieve God. They stopped believing what God said was good and, and right and would, would go well for them. And they believe that maybe there's some truth to what, what Satan has. And it didn't go well, just as God said it wouldn't. Their eyes were, were opened, but their eyes weren't open to the good life that You know, Satan said, and rather than being made like God, who they were already like, they were made like Satan. That was the difference. They were made like Satan. They were brought into his treachery, brought into his disobedience, brought into his rebellion. And the reaction is interesting because what they see is they see something, you know, from within that is that is ugly that they they want to hide. Um, they want to hide from God, they want to hide from one another, they want to get clothes on themselves, they want to do whatever they can to cover this this, uh, this ugliness that they have found now is within them. And the ugliness is, is this. And you've all felt it. You've all felt it. But for them, it, it went like this. Here is this um, God that has been nothing but good to us. We have this good, gracious God. He's created us. He's given us life. He's given us each other. He's given us Himself. He, he has provided for us. Our life is sustained by Him. Um, everything that we have that we love and is good, which is everything, it, it's directly from His hand. And he, He's asked us in return to, to honor Him and to serve Him as is completely and totally appropriate. And uh, really the first opportunity that we've had now to go the other way. We have exchanged... We have exchanged God for this serpent, and we've exchanged the good gifts that He's given us for this awful this awful gift. And so they saw they saw that this 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 came from while there was temptation from without that there was sin now within. That they, they chose something so wicked over something so good. That they, they ran from this this good, gracious and, and great God, and that was horrifying to them. It was ugly. It was despicable you you've you've committed sin and you've you've felt like this, okay you felt whatever words adjectives you want to insert words things I've felt filthy, defiled uh, unclean uh despicable um, these are the kinds of things that I've felt at certain sins, and what is my tendency then? My tendency is to hide my tendency is to hide uh to I, I don't want to be found out. Um, I don't even want to find it out, <laughs> you know, so what do I do? I distract myself um, or um, what have I done in the past, Try To numb myself and anything I can do to just not pay attention to what it is within that is really is really shameful. So no surprise, Adam and Eve respond the same way. First, they hide from each other. Um, their relationship with each other is, 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 is different. Verse 25, the end of chapter 2, it says they're naked and unashamed. That's something we don't understand. We're trying to get back to it. And in, 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 in beautiful marriage relationships, sometimes there's, there's, there's pieces of that, but, but, but not like Adam and Eve experienced. But by chapter 3, uh, they're trying to cover themselves up, and they're running in opposite directions, and they're trying to avoid one another. And then when God... Right? The, the one whom they have offended, the one whom they have sinned against, the one who is most innocent here, uh, they, they just try to hide. And, of course, God comes and finds them, and uh, he deals graciously with them. He does not end them, as we might expect. I mean, he, he has a little hearing right there. Right Here's uh, the serpent and Adam and Eve. He tries them, God is judged, and he finds them all guilty. They're all guilty. I mean, they try to do this, and they try to hide, and they try to blame, and, but, but, but it's clear that they're guilty. And so um, now what we're in, and verse 15 is a part of, is once God has tried them and found them guilty, he's passing sentence. He's passing a sentence on them. And what we look at today is his dealing with Satan, which is very different, isn't it, in how he deals with the man and the woman. When he comes to the man, he asks some questions. And then when he goes to the woman, he asks her questions. And there's dialogue, right? There's a dialogue between them. He talks with them. God does not dialogue with Satan. He does not talk with Satan. He talks at Satan. He talks to Satan. And he brings, he brings judgment on him. No grace. No grace given to Satan. No mercy given to Satan. And yet, this merciless, graceless pronouncement that God is going to make on Satan, these harsh, merciless words that God is going to speak to Satan are words of hope and grace and mercy for Adam and Eve who are listening. And so that's why we're spending all our time on one verse. Understand it, appreciate it, apply it. Let's pray, and then we'll dig right in. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, bringing us all together here today. God, we thank you that you have established your church, that your church has been meeting for 2,000 years now, and that your church has been gathering obediently uh, every single week to sing, to pray, to read, to study. To hear from you, God, and to respond to your initiative. So we pray as we come to this time of our service where we uh, we long to hear from you. We came singing your praises. We'll leave singing your praises. Father, we want to hear from you now. And so we're thankful that you've already brought your people together. That you've given us your word. That your spirit dwells within us. And now we pray that You would activate Your Spirit now in our hearts. That He would help us to understand truth. That otherwise we would not understand. That we would understand it, God. That we would see it as from You and good and appreciate and love and embrace all that that we hear. And that we would then seek to apply this to our lives. To live differently because of who You are and what You say. So do this work in this time. Please, we are dependent on You. We ask this in the perfect name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So please, if you haven't already, open your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 15. God says this, I will put enmity between... You and the woman. Summarize what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. I will put enmity between him and you. This is what he says. He shall bruise your head. He's talking to Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. So again, gathered together here in the garden, it's God and it's Satan. It's the man and it's the woman. So everyone is is, is represented here. They've all been found guilty and, and, and they're all standing before God in submission to Him now. And God is passing a sentence on them. And certainly what you would expect, because of what God had already said in 2.17, eat of this fruit and on that day you will surely die. Because of what God has already said, as well as what Adam and Eve undoubtedly are feeling within their very own soul, standing now before a holy God, what you would expect is the sentence to be death penalty. This is what you would expect. This is what you and I would expect. This is what we should expect. This is what we deserve. This is what you deserve. This is what I deserve for our sin against God. It is what Adam and Eve deserved. It's what Satan deserved. And so you would expect, they would expect God to say, death, Satan, death, Adam, death, Eve, game over. Uh, This is the, the end. But instead, God does something very different. And in summary, this is what God does in chapter 3, verse 15. This is a declaration of war. It's not battle is over, conflict over, everything done it is a declaration of war. This is what God does when He comes into the garden. But He doesn't declare war in the way you might think that He would. And He doesn't declare war against all whom you might think He would declare war against. You're going to see. This is God's grace right here in the garden. But God comes into the garden. He declares war. He uses this word enmity, which is a very, very strong word in the Hebrew. A lot of times in other languages, they, they, there's, there's, sometimes there's, there's better words than we have. One of the struggles in you know studying things and using tools of Scripture that was written, and for example, this in, in Hebrew and other parts of your Bible written in Greek and, and Aramaic and all languages that are not spoken anymore today, you'll find words that you need like ten English words to communicate what that word means and so this is one of those words i mean it's a word that that speaks to personal uh so personal hostility and and animosity so there's going to be hostility and animosity now is what god is saying but it's going to be really hostile see there you go that's what we have to do in english (laughs) Or, or we have to say things like it's going to be really 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 Right? And we're trying to get you along by just saying that word over and over again. So it's, it's going to be a war zone, is what God says. It's going to be a war zone. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be personal hostility and animosity. So God is pronouncing here, which doesn't at first sound like a good thing, but hear it out. God is pronouncing here that there is going to be hatred and conflict. And he's going to make sure, God is going to make sure that that hatred and that conflict continues. God's going to perpetuate hatred and conflict in the ways that he tells us. So it's like God comes into the garden and and is saying, We're in a state of war. This is what God's word pronounces to Adam and Eve. Three contexts. For this conflict. You see that when you read. He says there's going to be enmity in three different contexts. Right? There's going to be war, conflict, hatred. Between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. And between him and you. And so it goes from general to very specific. Where it's Satan and one man. But it starts, it says, between you and the woman... And then her offspring and your offspring and him and you. So the first context where uh, they can expect this animosity, he says to Satan, it's going to be between you and the woman. And most likely this means between Satan and all of mankind. Okay, there's going to be animosity, there's going to be hatred, there's going to be war, there's going to be a struggle in the spiritual realm, and that struggle is going to exist between all, all created mankind and Satan. So then he gets more specific, it says there's going to be another, another animosity... The conflict that's going to exist now, it's not only between you, Satan, and the woman. It's not only between you and all mankind. But there's going to be conflict between your offspring and her offspring. There's been lots of explanations that have been offered here. Some weird ones, too. Well, Satan doesn't have any babies. I'm sure you, Satan is not—he's not procreating. So... Uh, some have thought that maybe this means that your offspring is is demons that's possible, but uh, demons are not actually you know little satan babies okay so some of you you now understand that they're not satans they're not Satan's children demons are fallen angels like Satan and satan was the the ark. Angel who led rebellion against God. And so he's in this dominion over them. But these are the angels that went with him. And so they're fallen angels. They're, they're now demons. So, so most likely your offspring, her offspring does not refer to... You know, all of mankind and the struggle that's going to exist between them and and demons. Um, some commentators have suggested that, that your offspring and her offspring means her offspring is going to be Jesus and Satan's offspring is going to be the Antichrist. That's a little better. And it, it's getting a little more specific, but it seems to get too specific before uh, Christ is revealed in this very last part of verse 15. So... Many believe it means, and I would agree, that this this is conflict that's going to exist between godly descendants and wicked descendants. In other words, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be a war that, that is going to exist between those who love God and do the will of God and those who love Satan and do the will of Satan. And you could divide the world in, in two categories right now. now. Everybody falls into one of those categories. There is no in-between category. If you're not for God, you're against him. So if you don't love God, the God of the Bible, not a God, if you don't love God and serve God and obey God and honor God, then you don't love him and you don't serve him and you don't honor him and you work for and under his great enemy, who is Satan. So you can only serve one master, right? You can only serve one master. So you either are serving God or you're serving Satan. So those who serve Satan are not just those who who say, I worship Satan. You've known people who said, I'm a Satan worshiper. I worship Satan. It doesn't just include those who declare their allegiance to the devil. Okay, it includes all those who do not love God and do the will of God their Father but rather are doing the will of their father, Jesus says in John chapter 8. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not declare to be Satan worshipers, but Jesus says, you are children of the devil. You are Satan's offspring. And why is that? He says, because you do the will of your father. You're honoring him and you're working against God. Most likely that's what... God is pronouncing here. So there's going to be conflict between Satan and all mankind. There's not just going to be flesh and blood, there's going to be the spiritual battle that is waging on. There's going to be, additionally, more specific. It's going to be a war zone that's going to be between those who love and serve God and those who love and serve Satan. But then he gets very specific in the very last part of chapter 3, verse 15. This has been called by the theologians the Proto-Evangelium, which means the very first gospel. Derek Kidner, the commentary that was advertised by Pastor Curtis that we're selling, he calls this verse the, the first glimmer of the gospel. And the reason is the first glimmer of the gospel. In other words, the first glimmer of of good news. And the good news, we'll get here, is of course Jesus. In summary, the good news is, is Jesus. That God's kingdom has come through Christ and He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And this is the very first glimmer of that because it gets so specific that it talks about one particular man who's going to do battle with Satan. And this is how the battle will go. He, this one man, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so it's news that someday this woman is going to have a child. An individual hero is going to come on the scene. And that hero is going to go to battle with Satan. And Satan is going to bruise his heel. In other words, he's telling Satan, you're going to injure this rescuer. He's not going to get out of this unscathed. But he is going to render a blow to your head. So he's going to win. He's going to be victorious. And so that's why... Theologians have called this, and I would agree, the Proto-Evangelium. It is the very first gospel. But it's just a glimmer. Because you saw what I just did, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm backfilling it with all the other truth that we know that's beyond Genesis chapter 3. And our New Testament that gives all the detail of who the he is and what is the bruising of the heel. And oh, well, this is the cross. And what's the crushing of the head? And what's well, the crushing that happened on the cross? And what is still to come when Satan will be trampled underneath your feet? We have all these other verses to put around it. But here we just we just have this. But it's just a it's just a glimmer. You can imagine a, a dark room. Some of you, you ever been in like a pitch black room? Where there's, where there's no light. It's hard to find a place with no light. Maybe some of you, I have been like deep in a cave. Where there really is no light. Real darkness is actually frightening. It's very frightening. Where you really cannot see your hand right in front of your face. It's, it's very unnerving. So this is what it is in Genesis three, when the bottom comes out and the man and the woman fall. That's that darkness that they're in. So this chapter three, verse fifteen, it is just it's just like a, a little candle in the corner of the room. But very reassuring. But just a candle. Now fast forward thousands and thousands of years later, and here we are. And we don't just have a glimmer of the gospel, right? I mean, the lights have been turned on, right? There's floodlights, there's spotlights, there's candles, but you can barely tell they're lit because they're just engulfed. I mean, the, the blinds are pulled up. It's a sunny day outside. There's no clouds anywhere. Okay, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, right? The sun is just shining in, all the lights are on, and the light has just been spread into every corner of the room, and there's no darkness. I mean, thank God. I mean, we live in a a day where we don't just see a glimmer of the gospel. God's full-blown good news gospel in great detail has been revealed to us Through Jesus Christ, recorded for us, communicated to us through God's Word. But for Adam and Eve, very first glimmer of the Gospel. That's what you have in chapter 3, verse 15. Now let's try to appreciate that. Let's try to appreciate that. Understanding what was taking place. Can we see the grace that this is? in verse 15. In chapter 3 though it's the it's the it's strange. It's the darkest chapter in your Bible. The darkest chapter in your Bible because the man and the woman fall. You know, paradise lost. I mean, they just fall and hit rock bottom here. So it's the darkest chapter in your in your Bible, but it also is like the brightest. Chapter in your Bible because of what God says here. So there's there's much grace that has been poured out grace abounding in Genesis chapter three. I mean, first, let's consider all the grace that's already happened. Lots of grace has already happened. Remember what grace grace is undeserved favor. An easy way to remember grace undeserved favor. So grace happens when you get something good that you don't deserve. Grace and mercy are very similar, but they're, they're different, right? Mercy is when you deserve something. Okay, here it comes. Judgment, justice, something bad, painful is coming your way and you deserve it. So here it comes and then it's held on to and it's pulled back and you don't get what you deserve. What's happened? Mercy. 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 I should be in big trouble, not in big trouble. Mercy. Something is withheld. Grace is different. Grace isn't that something is withheld. Grace is beyond mercy where something is poured out. So not only is the bad that you deserve withheld through mercy, but now grace is the good that you don't deserve is lavished on you. It's poured out on you. And so lots of grace happening here in Genesis 3. If you're a Christian, the, the the grace is that you have not received condemnation for your sin, but you have received, through Christ, justification before God. So, the grace is that this is what you deserve, but you get the exact opposite. Not just you don't get what you deserve, not you get something good, But you get the exact opposite of what you deserve. You've crossed over, John says, from death to sickness. (laughs) You know, a painful death to a quick death. You know, slow. No, from death to life. The exact opposite of what we deserve is what has been given. So, so far, God's grace has already been poured out on Adam. Don't overlook that. First, God gave him the gift of life. It was grace for God to, to did did Adam deserve did Adam do something to deserve being formed into a man out of dust? He did nothing, right? So life, life this all started. In Genesis 1, this all started with grace. Adam was given life. But not only was Adam given life. Okay, he wasn't just given mediocre life. It was paradise. Adam was given life, but he was given a garden, a garden, a beautiful place without, without weeds. No weeds pre-fall. Maybe some of the pretty weeds, like dandelions or something, but nothing ugly. No crabgrass. I can tell you that as a man with lawns. No crabgrass. No thorns. No thorns. Well, how many times? I mean, you want a blackberry, and you've got to almost die <laughs> getting blackberries, right? Because thorns and and painful, right? All right? Hot sun beating down, sunburn, sweating. Right? Everything changed after after the fall, but here, this is nothing. Just good in this garden. God goes a step further says man it's not good for you to be alone and so he gives him this this woman he gives him this woman creates this this perfect companion for him and places them in this garden there's one man one woman completely naked in a beautiful garden absolute absolute paradise what is all of that grace you don't read that the God created Adam and then God was figuring out what he wanted to do, and Adam started, God was impressed with Adam. And God did some things that just really took God off guard and just surprised how trustworthy and faithful and kind and sweet and good with the animals this man was. It is not, God is not responding to anything good in Adam. You never see that. you never see that in God's Word. The good that's in His people is good because there because God put it there. There's just nothing to boast in. it's always God's grace. So God pours this out. And then you even see that God gives the grace for Adam to enjoy this relationship with God. I mean, who is he is a guy that was made from dirt to enjoy to enjoy God. How about after he has sinned, he, he gets to have a conversation with God? You see these relational privileges that man has with God. It is all God's grace that is poured out on him. And then the fall comes. And and when you think that that's all going to disappear, not only does that all not disappear, it changes, but it doesn't disappear. But then God does something even further here in chapter three, verse 15. It's that candle, right? That candle in the corner of the room where it's darkness, it's pitch black. Wicked is consumed darkness is consumed and here they are before god he's passing sentence and then this candle is lit and god is gracious again in four ways that i hope will appreciate four ways there, there are four aspects of god's grace just in this one verse there's there's four things that, that god promises and every single one of them, if we, if we understand what it is that God promises, it is reason for us to be thankful and grateful and to appreciate God's grace. The first gracious thing that God promises is war. This is what God has done, right? He has declared war. The enemy... Right has initiated an offense against the sovereign. And so his response is to enter a state of war. And so he declares this enmity. He declares war against Satan and promises that there will be war until. And this is gracious of God perpetual war and irreconcilable hatred between Satan and the church of God. One commentator puts it like this, and I think it helps us to understand and appreciate why this is a good thing that God makes war against Satan. Now that man has fallen into sin, the last thing that might be expected would be enmity between himself and Satan. The two have cited in their opposition against God and His purposes. Do you understand what the author is saying here? It's a great point. That if God does not come down and and change the allegiances here in the garden then there will be no war between the man and Satan because right now when God comes into the garden, are they at war with one another? No. Who are they at war with? They're at war against God. Adam, Eve, and Satan, make no mistake, they are allies when God comes into the garden. They were allies. This is why we call this treason. They were allies with God. And then they, what did they do? They changed sides They went to the other side. They followed Satan. They allied themselves with him. So there's no reason to expect, oh, well, if God doesn't do anything here, there's not going to be war and conflict. That's not what happens. God makes certain who the war is going to be between. I mean, it's a war zone. Sin has entered the world. But when God comes into the garden, it is Adam, it is Eve, It is Satan at war with God. Satan has won the allegiance of Adam and Eve. And what does God do? He wins their allegiance back. How does he do it? Through a promise. Is that interesting? How did Satan win their allegiance? With a lie. He won their allegiance with a lie. And God comes and speaks truth, lights a candle in this dark room and gives them hope and brings them back to Himself through His promise. So, you live today in a world where there is great conflict between light and darkness, between good and evil. There's a conflict if you are a Christian. There is a conflict that even wages war within your soul. You understand before you were a Christian, there was no battle. Your soul was not a battleground. Now your soul is a battleground. So thank God for the war. Thank God that he declared war. The reason that it was not a battleground before is because you were just doing the will of your father, Satan. Again, it doesn't mean you were worshipping Him or bowing down to Him, but it means you, you were uninterested in God. You were indifferent to the things of Him. You didn't care to know His Word. You didn't care to follow His Word. Just like I was. You were going your own way. Like a sheep that has gone astray. No interest in the things of God, setting up your own ways to God and your own ways to heaven and your own ladders and your own works and all of this, your own religion. And therefore, you were not for God. You were not with God. You were not loving God. You were not serving God. You were not honoring God. And this is the way that you were going. So there was no there was no real battle or war. Okay, you were just losing. You weren't fighting. The enemy. You were giving in to the enemy. But here's what here's what happens. Okay, you have a sinful nature, which is why we even we are conceived in sin. Okay, we we are speaking lies from the womb. The Bible says it doesn't mean literally speaking lies. We're not speaking yet, but it means that we're sinful. Romans five. We're guilty before we're even born. We're guilty because our first father Adam sinned. So we are guilty we have a sinful nature our propensity our nature is to not pursue God it is to run from God and all of us experience that that is our human nature now before you become a Christian that's all there is that's all there is I mean there's God's grace and that he's restraining you and keeping you from being as wicked as you could be but it's your sinful nature Dwelling within. Now this is why. One of the things that God does. When he causes you to be born again. Is he puts his spirit in you. Christian you still have a sinful nature. One day. That will be completely mortified. Completely killed. But for now. There is a war. That wages on Within you. Thank God. For that war. Do you feel it? Or Paul in Romans 7. I know what I ought to do. And I do not do it. And I know what I should not do. And that's what I keep doing. Do you love that text? Because you can. You can feel normal. As a Christian. I mean this is the apostle Paul. That is varsity. Right? That's big time. And he's saying the good that I ought to do, I do not do, and that which I should not do, that is what I find myself doing. This is the language in Romans seven twenty-one through 25. I mean, he gets like frustrated as he's writing this because of this battle that's within. But it's a good battle. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's a sinful nature. Holy Spirit duking it out within his soul. Wretched man that I am, he says. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Answers his own question. What is he doing, by the way? He's preaching the gospel to himself. Preaching the gospel to himself. You hear his hopeless language? What a wretched human being I am. Do you ever feel like just a wretched human being? If you ever do, that is God's grace poured out on your life. There was a day, wasn't there? There was a day when that battle did not wage the way it does now. And you're much more indifferent to your sin than you are today. It is proof of God's grace being poured out in your life. You hate sin? Do you hate Satan? You should. Friends, hatred is not unchristian. Hatred is just usually misdirected. Christian, you should feel hate. You should feel animosity. Romans 12:9 couldn't say it stronger, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Do you hate sin? Do you hate Satan? If you do, praise God that He's poured out His grace in your life. There was a day when you did not, right? And there are those who when circumstances come and pain comes and suffering comes, it swallows them up and they shake their fist at God. But for the believer, we shake our fist at our great enemy. And we look forward to the day He is thrown into the lake of fire. We find great security in singing songs that say, Lo, his doom is sure. Why? Because we hate him. We hate our enemy. When you see suffering in the world, when you read the headlines, when you feel that anger welling up inside of you, do not dismiss it, but direct it in a godly way towards your enemy, Satan. Do you hate sin? Praise God if you hate sin. I mean, everybody hates the consequences of sin. Everyone hates that if I do this wrong thing, I'm going to be embarrassed. Everyone hates that if I do this, I could lose my family or I could lose my job or I could lose this friendship or I could lose some comfort. We all hate sin in that way. But Christian, do you hate sin in such a way that you mourn over the fact that you have dishonored a God who's been nothing but good to you? there was a day when you did not but god has declared war and he's declared war in your soul and it is the grace of god because if there wasn't a war you and i would just be losing so there's a promise of of war and that is good news second we see here in chapter 3 verse 15 promise of a savior promise of a savior so this is this is good news It's going to be a war and then there's going to be a a he right at the end there. He shall crush your head. So there is going to be a savior, which is why everything after Genesis 315, your whole Old Testament leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. What are they all doing, among other things? They're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the he in 315. They're waiting for the bruising. Now, they misinterpreted some of this and. Forgot about the, he will bruise the heel. And we're thinking someone's going to come in and just conquer the Romans and the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But they were waiting for a redeemer. Come thou long expected one. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for Christ. Why? Because God said in the garden, there's going to be a savior. A rescuer will come. So there's the promise of war promise of a savior as well as a promise of a suffering savior you shall to satan you shall bruise his heel in other words we learned this in the very beginning about our savior that our savior was not going to get out of this unscathed but that he was going to endure pain that he was going to endure injury that he was going to endure suffering not what we could have expected But it was said here for the first time, there will be blood. There will be blood. Your salvation is not only going to come as the blood of your enemy is shed, but the blood of your Savior is going to be shed. Or later, before Christ, they heard the prophet Isaiah say it like this. Isaiah 53, 5, But he this is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Centuries later, the prophet saying, with His wounds, we are healed. We know what that's talking about. How does that relate to Genesis chapter 3? With His wounds wounds, and you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. So my people will be saved, they will be rescued, but there will be a cost to the Saviour. And there was. And then fourth and most encouraging, there is a promise of a victorious Saviour. He shall bruise your head. Or we hear verses like from the New Testament that say, in regards to the cross, Colossians 2.15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. What is Paul talking about? When did that happen? It happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So God says graciously in this one verse, in the very beginning, that there is a promise of a war. Okay, There will be war. There will be a rescuer. He will suffer, but He will win. All of that in this one verse to Adam and Eve is meant to be that proto-evangelion good news to them as they sit rock bottom after the fall. There's going to be war. There will be a rescuer. He will suffer, but he will win. And even when it looked like, right, we know this, this is such good news, even when it looked like he was losing, he was securing his defeat. I mean, here is Jesus on the, on the cross Okay, and it, it appears to be just the epitome of defeat. I mean, he has been defeated. And when he says those words, it is finished. It's a cry of victory, but to others, it sounds like a cry of defeat, right? You can imagine Satan, who, remember, is not omniscient, who is believing at this point that he has won. Which is why Jonathan Edwards calls Satan the biggest blockhead in the history of the world, because he just missed it. He just missed it. This prophecy in Genesis three fifteen wasn't ringing in the back of his head as he saw Christ on the cross consumed in his own pride. He wasn't thinking, "Wait, his heel's going to be bruised." Oh no, it looked like victory, didn't it? But here in the garden, Adam and Eve are told, The rescuer will come and he will win. We've understood it, Lord willing, we've appreciated it. The grace that is poured out on them, on us, and now let's try to apply it. Just a, a couple of things. One, I want us to summarize what is said here, and I want to speak specifically though to, to those of you who are not believers. To those of you who aren't sure, I hope more than a few of you fit in that category. It seems that often there's a a security today that people have that they shouldn't have. And so if you you believe you're a Christian and if you feel safe and if you feel good and, and you have no worries because of things like you're good. Or you've gone to church your whole life. Or you, you check Christian on the ballot box. Or you're a Republican. Or you subscribe to a strict morality. Or other people look up... I mean, just, just anything other than... I know I'm a wicked... Sinner, deserving death and alienation from God. And Jesus Christ came and lived in my place and died in my place and rose from the dead in my place. And so all my allegiance is to Him. And He's Lord. Even the things I don't know He tells me to do, I'm ready to do. He's my savior and He's my treasure. There is whom have I in heaven but You, Lord? There is nothing on earth I desire besides You. My heart and my flesh may fail, but You are the strength of my heart, and You are my portion forever. If that's not You, then You're not a Christian, and You're not a believer. And so, hear this: this is good news. This is what you need to hear and not just glaze over it, not just skim past it, not just run through it. But really, you need to hear what he says to Adam and Eve. He says to you as a sinner, there is going to be a war. There will be a rescuer. He will suffer. He will win. There is a war. God sent Jesus. He is your rescuer. He suffered. But he most certainly what? He won. He secured victory on the cross. So here's what, we, here's what we have. And here this non-believer, unsure believer. What we're reading here is right in the middle of the curse, right? Is what, is what we call this. God looks at Satan and says, cursed are you. And he looks at the woman and says, cursed are you. And he looks at the man and says, cursed is the ground because of you. So God passes sentence on all of them. This is the curse. So here's, here's the truth. All of us in this room are cursed. We are all cursed, but we are not all cursed. That's helpful, right? (laughs) We are all cursed, but we are not all cursed. This is what we mean. To be cursed means to be removed from blessing. Curse is the opposite of blessing. That's why at the end of every service, I don't curse you. I bless you. I want there to be blessing and, and good things. I don't you know wish lightning to strike and thunder to roll and cars to crash. And I don't I don't want that. I want blessing for you. Okay, we want blessing for ourselves. We want blessing for others. We all pursue pleasure and happiness, which will only be found though we're learning in God. So we are we are all cursed in in that. Well, we what have we read so far? Right there is. It is a difficult world we live in. This is a war zone. Childbirth is painful. Bringing up children is painful. Uh, Marriages are difficult. Uh, A man providing, uh, making his livelihood, providing for his family is difficult. I mean, all the things we've looked at and how God has talked about is cursed. The man we are all cursed, and we are in a world that is is broken and full of of sin. But we are not all cursed. In other words, there is is blessing that none of us have right now. And some of you shall have it. And some of you will never have it. And that is a sense in which all of us are not cursed. There is blessing to be had that, that none of us have right now. There is a world... There, there is a place. It will be this place redone. There is a place and there is a time where there is no curse, where there is no sin, where there is no suffering, where there is no pain, where there is no cancer, where there is no brokenness, where there is no dysfunction, where there are no tears. There is a, a, a place And there is a time where none of those things, none of those things will be. And some of us will have that blessing and some of us will not have that blessing. What's the difference? It all comes down to whether or not you recognize and repent to the rescuer. So all of us are under a curse right now. But there are some of you who recognize Christ as your rescuer and you have repented to Christ as your rescuer. And so the promise is that when this life is over, there is a place of blessing and no curse. But if we do not turn to Christ, then, then this world and its curse is a foretaste of what's to come. The pain and the suffering here, will only be magnified. So if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, then you're going to be with Jesus. And all the suffering and all the pain and all the curse of this world is just going to make it sweeter. Right? It's why ice cream tastes the best on a hot day. I mean, who wants ice cream on a cold, wintry, rainy day? It doesn't taste as good, right? There's no no contrast. But when you're suffering in the heat and you go to eat ice cream, it's good, right? It's good in a different way so too heaven is sweet. It is sweet for those who have endured pain and suffered in this life. But if you do not deal with your Rescuer, and if you do not recognize Him as your Rescuer, and you do not repent and turn to Him as your Lord and your Savior and your treasure, then this curse becomes a foretaste of a place where there is no blessing. And all curse. So, when we hear that there is a war that we're in, and there is now a rescuer who has come, and that he is a rescuer who has suffered and who has won the victory, and who is calling us to come to him and turn to him, we must turn to him now. Because the battle will end, and the sides will be divided. And one will be a place of eternal blessing and one a place of eternal curse. That is what is said. And now for those of you who are believers, I hope this will be a good encouragement to you. Not as much what is said here, though that's huge. But look closely to when God says this. I find this extremely encouraging. Not just what God says in chapter 3, verse 15, but see when God says this. In other words, God comes to Adam and Eve at the very bottom. Adam and Eve have not taken one step toward God. They have not taken a single step toward God They have not made any motion toward God. There is not a single good deed that has been done. There's not a single good work for them to notch. They haven't written a tithe check yet. They haven't helped any old ladies across the street. They haven't given to charities. They haven't built up any church attendance. They haven't served in a ministry. They haven't done any of these things yet. I mean, they are rock bottom. They are in complete and total, total despair. No hope in a pitch black room. And that's when God comes and turns on the light. I think we are so dense to accept this and believe this. I need to apply this to myself. I need to receive this grace from God. Isn't that why when I sin, I'm so slow to repent? Well, I need to to get cleaned up first. I need to get a little bit of a track record first. And then I'll feel worthy to come to you, God. Then I'll repent. Then I'll confess. But I need to take a couple steps here. I need to accomplish something. What am I doing when I do that? What am I doing when I hit rock bottom in my sin and I'm not quick to go to the cross, but in shame, run away from the cross and want to do some good things before what am I what am I doing? Friends, it's wicked. I'm trying to earn it. And I'm trying to feel worthy. Because I don't want to feel unworthy before Christ. But here's the truth. Adam and Eve, God just gave them no time. You are always unworthy when you come to the cross. I don't care if you've had a good day or a bad day. I don't care if you sinned three minutes ago or you sinned three days ago, which probably isn't true. You're always going to be unworthy when you come to the cross. But you... This is the miracle of the gospel. You come to Christ through Christ. (laughs) I mean, you come before God and, and find forgiveness and cleansing and empowerment and new identity. You come to God and you find all these things and you come totally helpless, totally hopeless, totally broken, totally jacked up, totally dirty, totally filthy, totally screwed up. You come to that pleading nothing in yourself. It's all just have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's coming to God really saying, he said I could come with him. And Christ says, amen. My child adopted his sons and daughters. So here you are, Christian, you are a son and you are a daughter. And God is your father. We need to receive this from God as well. We need to demonstrate this to others, I would say. The the empowering that we receive, by the way, is empowering to be godly. You know, not power to succeed in business and power to make a million bucks and power to win the world over and power to no it's power to fight sin (laughs) and it's power to be holy and it's power to yield our will to to god's will do we demonstrate this kind of grace to others or do we hold out for others do we make them take certain steps especially in our families in our church where it's crucial that we apply grace to one another. I've seen marriages where one takes the position of God and the other takes the position of guilty Adam or Eve. Only the God in the relationship wants to see them take a few steps before they'll give grace. Was well, not whatever it is godly. That's not godly and it's not gracious. With our, children. With our children, do we extend this sort of grace to our children? Say, oh, well, they need consequences. Well, they do. And Adam and Eve get consequences. Do you know what they get first? Love and tenderness from their God. Not anger and wrath. I mean, they're going to reap what they've sown. Because He loves them. But how does He come to them? When does He come to Adam and Eve? He comes when they're at rock bottom in total despair. What sort of demeanor does God bring? It is gracious. He yells at Satan, if you will. No conversation here. No, 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 no. no nothing. We could do that with our children. But what does He do? He gets to the heart of Adam and Eve and asks some questions. Gives them consequences, but he makes sure he makes sure that they are assured of his great, no matter what, never give up love for them. So Christians, we ought to demonstrate that kind of grace, and we ought to receive and accept that kind of grace from God. One of the ways we can do that is we take communion together. We eat this bread. We drink this juice as Jesus commanded us to do. And we remember, we remember his blood shed on the cross through these symbols. And we that, remember that that is the way that he has brought us to God. We respond in gratitude. We respond in thankfulness. We respond with repentance. We respond with heavy hearts of conviction, but we respond now to Christ's initiative dying for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace that You have lavished on us. God, that You have not just given us small gifts, but You have given us all gifts and all good things. God, thank You that we as as believers are, are co-heirs with Christ. That what He gets, we get, Lord. That You don't even divide up the reward amongst all Your people. You give fully to each and every one of Your people. And so we thank You for making us Your children, God. God, and we know though we've been told differently and We know, God, that we have not loved You the way we ought not served You the way we ought. And we thank You for forgiving us for our sin. We thank You for making that possible through the death of Your Son, Jesus Christ. So no wonder we love Him. May we love Him more and more and with more heart and with more mind and with more soul and with more strength. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas truth.com.